And I'm Kyle Thompson. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And this time we are reading a uh, we're reading an article called Vital Cells by Kevin Sumnicht that was published in December of 2021. Um, this I, 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 I don't know I kind of picked this one out because it felt like um, a nice follow-on from our reading of Anarchist Cybernetics. Um, in that this is also an article that comes out of the uh, anarchist and kind of autonomous milieu that um, levels its critique against the milieu um, and kind of implores everyone to uh, pick up cybernetics, uh, which uh, all of that works for us, <laughs> you know, uh, straight up our alley. Yeah, I think it's it's on the same page as us in that regard. Um, it does seem to come more out of the autonomous side of things than the anarchist one, um, uh, which is... I mean, for people who aren't familiar with the distinction, uh, autonomism is a tradition that comes out of Marxism um, and is on the sort of far left of uh, Marxist thinking, um, heavily influenced by Deleuze and influenced by ideas of self-organization among workers. Um uh, although, you know, for some autonomists later on, they kind of drop the category of worker altogether. Uh, but yeah, essentially, they kind of come to a similar place as anarchists, even though they're coming at it from a Marxist background. Um, so there's a lot of sort of Marxist theory that goes into autonomism Um which you may not necessarily get in anarchism, which has its own kind of intellectual background that it's drawing on. Um, but yeah, they have they have a lot of common ground uh, with each other, despite coming from different backgrounds. Yeah, um, is um, I, like is is autonomism still that much of a thing, or did it all melt into communization? Uh, I don't think communization and autonomism are really the same thing. Like my left calm knowledge is not like a hundred percent there, but yeah. from what I understand, like, uh, autonomism, you know, it's, it's very interested in this idea of the social factory where the whole society is the, the location of class struggle. It's very interested in this idea of the multitude where it's like the idea is sort of that we all already are latently living in communism already. If we were just to manifest it, then we would be in communism. Like the potential is all entirely there already. We just have to become the multitude and then we can be communist like instantly kind of thing. Whereas I feel like communization theory has this sort of um, 
kind of insurrectionary bleakness about it that I don't really associate with autonomism. Uh, it's like the uh, on the one hand in autonomism, you have the sort of grand theory stuff, which is all about this kind of like inherent potential, the sort of uh, Spinoza-like inherent potential for communism that's just always there and can manifest. And they do have a background in like actual... Um, factory organizing from when they were originated in Italy and the other side of autonomism that sort of comes out of that is a lot of ethnography of workers like looking at organizing efforts in shops in factories in call centers in all of these places and like trying to find evidence of worker self-organization and that kind of like movement towards being multitude. Um, yeah, that, so it's, it's very much like there's the high theory side of it and there's this ethnographic side of it. And both of them are very important to what autonomism is, but I feel like, um, the stuff out of communization is more the high theory side. And then they kind of like, I guess in a way similar to autonomism, sort of pick examples of particular uprisings or demonstrations, or I guess as, as our uh, as our, our fellow network member Ezra has called them tantrums uh, to to sort of support their their theory. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, communization doesn't strike me as having the same kind of like ethnographic detailed micro level on the ground analysis as uh as autonomism does hmm. yeah certainly um so this this article comes out of the um the autonomous kind of tradition but it's 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 really critical of it and it's kind of as we said at the start it's like kind of saying um hey look we've kind of dropped the ball on uh organizing and actually getting things done um like our our kind of um quote tantrums don't actually seem to really go anywhere uh, maybe we need to rethink stuff um so uh, i'll just re read a little bit here so uh quoting from the article for too long the anarchist and autonomous movement has refused an intensive and protracted theoretical debate on organization with the result that our thinking on the matter has remained in a state of self-incurred infancy where this debate did occur it often found itself trapped within a sterile opposition between formality and informality that is as fallacious as it is reductive Although many of us correctly identify the obsolescence of principal models handed down to us by the 20th century, um, we want neither one big union nor the classical cadre party of Marxist antiquity. Our prevailing mode of organization, herein referred to as the milieu, is severely lacking. Are there, are there other organizational forms that remain untried? And the answer to that bit then is yes, there is, and they're going to propose... Um, a shift in thinking via cybernetics, um, which yeah, it's, it, this is this is wonderful because it's it's right up our alley, and it's all it's always just nice to know that we're not totally alone in in thinking about this stuff. Uh, yes, um, yeah, like I I agree. Like I think that their diagnosis of the situation is similar to ours, and their uh, appeal to cybernetics for solutions is also very similar to ours. Uh, so I think we have a lot of common ground there for sure. Um, 
So, yeah, I, I do have critiques of this piece, but um, I think that, like, they're working towards something similar, uh, you know, that, that we're doing um, and, and people we, we work with are doing. So that's, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. It's good to see. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's pretty, it's pretty good overall. It's, it's like the, the way I'll kind of put my general kind of critiques is that like, um, a lot of stuff I encounter coming out of autonomism and a lot of anarchist writing and, and stuff always kind of rings a bit hollow and seems to be kind of contentless. You know, it has a lot of ethical assertions and a lot of rah-rah to the barricades kind of uh, feel-good stuff, but it seems to very, have very little substance. This this article is vastly less hollow than most of the stuff I'm accustomed to from there, so it's um, it gets my thumbs up for that. Uh, it is it is much more substantial than what I'm accustomed to to, to reading uh, from this. Yeah, um, I think that. So the problems I've had with autonomism are like you you know my first introduction to it was by reading Hart and Negri. Um, you know, their books like, uh, Empire, Multitude, etc. Um, and Multitude was just like, so out to lunch, like it was hard to take it seriously at all. Like it was, I mean, you know, they just go on and on about things like, well, Marx always talked about revolution being like a mole, but our, our revolution is like a snake. And like, we got to, we got to ride the snake. And it's like, you know, this is just like weird shit that you would airbrush on the side of a van. You know, it's, it's like, this isn't, this isn't any revolutionary theory I could actually do anything with. <laughs> cool heavy metal album cover shit, you know? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's like, like the, the sort of like, you know, just kind of like jamming, riffing nature of it, like was fun, but not something I would ever take seriously as like a political theory text. Um, but then there's the, the, the other side of autonomism, which I, I mentioned that kind of ethnographic side. And, um, it always seemed to me to be, um, I guess that, uh, like writing for delivery delivery book, uh, that we, we covered on the show earlier would be a good example of that kind of scholarship. Um, where it's like, yeah, this is really interesting. This is, it's cool to see like at this micro level, how organization actually happens, how people actually come together. Um, but it, it doesn't like exist within a kind of strategic context. And the strategic context is something that like autonomous just kind of didn't, want to think about in my experience um of like it's like okay so like you know this starbucks is organizing and this is how it's going down and you know this is how people are raising consciousness this is how people are working together how they're subverting the boss like etc etc it's like but what is that going to do about say like the massive draconian program of social service cuts and like gentrification uh, in this entire province or country or like what is 
what does that have to do with like you know the broader context of of this Starbucks? Um, there's no answers there uh, except for if you go to like Hart and Negri, where it's like, well, you just got to ride the snake. <laughs> um, so like it's like you know simultaneously too abstract and too concrete um, was the kind of problem that I had with autonomism. And this is trying to kind of think that intermediate level, uh, which I do appreciate a lot for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, certainly. Um, so the, the author kicks into uh, things with um, uh, pulling a really good one out of the hat, uh, Gregory Bateson with The Cybernetics of the Self, um, which was written, kind of inspired by Bateson's observations of the organizational structure of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, which feel, feels like a real out there sort of pull, but um, it's, there's, there's, something, there's something really good here. Um, uh, it, I think it's, it's like Bateson's, Bateson's kind of quoted as like um, thinking of the AA stuff as like a kind of cybernetic epistemology um, that kind of begins from acknowledging the failure of like the like just pure will to overcome a problem that like you you can't beat addiction through sheer self will right um and you the the trick then with like uh, the aa is that um people who are recovering like kind of uh, surrender their like or uh, what's the what's the word they actually use um is it surrender yeah i i, I want to get this as right as i can because i'm um, I, I don't have direct experience with AA, um, with some experience with observing from a distance, but, um, I'm, for, for listeners, we're, we're going to try to do this as sensitively as we can, but we're not experts. So, um, yeah, my, my background with 12 step programs is that, uh, you know, my, my, my father has used various 12 step programs, uh, for, as a venue for, you know, therapy and self therapy, um, for decades now. Uh, so I've had a quite a bit of exposure to 12 step programs, but I, I haven't had, uh, uh, the experience of firsthand participation. Um, so it's, 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 it's a secondhand kind of experience. So I, I can't speak to it as uh, somebody who's been through, uh, the whole process. Yeah. We're, we're going to try our best though. Um, uh, but the, the 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 idea here is that like going from a like just trying to will your way out of it, right? Going from there to twelve twelve step program is kind of using this. It's like a like a cybernetic like a systems technology of like um, relinquishing some of your will and putting yourself into a system that perpetuates sobriety uh, by deactivating an obsessive relation with the self. Which yeah, it's. Um, it, it's good stuff. And like the, the, the author here is going to kind of use this as um, a way of like kind of pivoting out of the anarchist and autonomous kind of obsession with like small scale, like like individualist and like sheer will sort of ways of, of trying to organize and to really pitch for like, no, we, sh we really should have structured uh, like systems that actually perpetuate the thing we want. Right, because it, it turns out that's how you that's how you get what you want, basically. Like, if you want to get sober, you insert yourself into a system that perpetuates sobriety. You withdraw yourself from a system that perpetuates um, the addiction. Right. So, like, um, you know, it's kind of a response to those sort of like op-ed or like listicle pieces you see all the all the time online, where it the 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 
the main thrust of it is like, well, I would simply not be addicted. Like, I, I, I would simply stop drinking. Like, you know, somebody who is not an alcoholic talking about alcoholism or somebody who is not experiencing the condition they're describing or has not experienced it saying like, well, why don't you just stop? You know, it's like with ADHD, it's like, well, why don't you just focus? Mm, it's a load bearing just, <laughs> you know, that that is that is it's like when that is it, it. Yeah, exactly. The just there is like doing magical work of erasing the problem that it's meant to address. And the, the problem being structural, right, that you're, you're in a feedback loop. Um, you're in the case of addiction, your brain and your nervous system is, is trapped in a feedback loop. And the only the way out of it is to break the feedback loop, which is breaking a lot of structural stuff and doesn't doesn't really have that much to do with the will um, of the individual. Um, yes. Um, yeah. And I think that this is something that uh, I've observed to some degree in like Buddhist meditation practices as well. Right. Where it's like the way to achieve a higher um, state of consciousness is not to become attached to your goal and uh, will it into existence because then you're already sabotaging the thing that you're trying to achieve. So you have to maintain this kind of um, alternative relationship to your goals uh, in, in meditation and in terms of self-transformation is you, you can't say like, Oh, I'm so stupid. I, I like, why can't I just be enlightened? Like, why can't I just, you know, uh, think better? Like why, why am I so obstinately obsessed with this? But then it's like, you have to step back and realize that that pattern of recursive thinking is already yourself engaging in an attachment and engaging in a lower mode of consciousness. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a similar kind of problematic. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think there, there was something very, uh, it's probably something worth foregrounding here, right? That like, um, the reason the author seems to be, um, uh, digging this particular hole is, uh, because of that, that concept of like, um, healing and like self-regeneration and like building your capacities right like that's that's what you're doing in AA and that's his kind of diagnosis of what we need as as like individuals and as movements to like kind of like shift into a um, shift into a system that would actually perpetuate growth and meaningful healing and uh, increase in our capacities and like he's kind of looking back on the last couple of decades with the, the movements and stuff and being like, hey, this shit hasn't worked out. Like we're we're not we're not gaining capacities by by doing this stuff. We're not like, you know, we just seem to be endlessly burning out and stuff. Um so I, I'm very, very sympathetic to that, you know. And it it gets back to that sort of like Spinozist outlook of of autonomism where essentially like we all have these incredible capacities to be more than we are within us at all times, but they are 
suppressed by I, I forget exactly what the terminology that like Deleuze and Guattari used, but like like something like the sad the, the sad passions. The sad passions, yes. The sort of the, the mobilization of the sad passions to make us less than what we are at a kind of imminent uh, level, right? That 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 like it's not that we have to, in a sort of Aristotelian sense, like grow and flourish into what our telos is. It's that we already are those things that we associate with flourishing. It's just that those things are being like obscured or suppressed or saddened or weakened by these uh, pathological um, machines that exist in our society, right? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, the author is also very impressed with the structure of the AA as uh, as something inspirational for for movements, right? Like for for organizing, um, because like the the AA doesn't have like a central authority. It's it's um, highly distributed. There's a lot of variety between like groups, but there's a kind of common ground in the commitment to the twelve steps and the twelve traditions. Um, yeah. Um, this was a thing that I sort of wanted to push back on a bit um, because I don't think that AA groups are actually high variety. I think they're quite low variety, actually, because the thing about 12-step programs is that they have a very specific purpose. Like, these, this is our user base this is what we are trying to achieve. This is the specific problem that we are working on. And if a 12-step group, like an AA group, becomes about dealing with a problem other than the one it was founded to deal with, it will fork into another 12-step program that is about that problem rather than Dif uh, diluting its focus, um, which suggests to me that actually the 12-step groups are quite low variety and they have this protocol, like to, you know, uh, bring up the sort of protocols that we're going to be talking about later on, um, to deal with variety attenuation, where if it's like, this is outside of our project scope, then we're going to fork it into a different project. And that's not a that's not a a criticism of twelve step programs. That's actually saying, well, this is a functional solution to the problem. Is like rather than becoming a higher level organization that manages a variety of different problems, they just become a separate organization that deals with a separate problem um, with with a similar protocol. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 certainly the case, right? Like, um. Yeah, that's interesting because like they they'll have a uh, like at the, at the like system five like policy identity level. There's a kind of laser focus that you're right. Like it, it it trims the variety of the problem by just fucking excluding so much stuff from consideration. It's like no no no, we have this laser focus on this thing, and that that's definitely something worth bearing in mind, right? That like 
um, is it that these things are so effective because they are so narrowly focused and we'd have to be then quite cautious about um, transplanting the model onto things that are more nebulous, such as like, we don't like capitalism, you know? Exactly, exactly. That That is my main point of hesitation about this proposal, I think. The author may be mistaking the sort of organization that these organizations are. Because, um, like, you know, um, uh, like, for instance, my, my, my father uh, started out in Codependence Anonymous, and now he's a member of uh, Al-Anon, which is like a kind of like a support organization to AA where um, it's it's about uh, family members of people who are alcoholics or have suffered from alcoholism uh, getting together and doing their own support as, um, you know, uh, members of a family that has alcohol in uh, alcoholism in it. So it's like, if you're strictly speaking an alcoholic, you shouldn't go to Al-Anon. You should go to AA. And if you're not an alcoholic, but you're you're related closely to one, you shouldn't go to AA. You should go to Al-Anon. Um, so it's it's pretty uh, like I wouldn't say that, you know, in a meeting, in a 12 step meeting, that the, the, the subject of conversation is strictly prescribed, but they do try to maintain as much as possible a focus in terms of what sorts of people come to participate uh, based on a common mode of uh, suffering that they're going through. Um, and I think that that helps not because it means that like the conversation is very low variety or because it has like a super specific um, uh, problem that it's addressing, like say, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, you go to a notary public exclusively to get documents notarized, right? Like that's a hyper specific reason that that institution exists. I don't think that 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 12 step is low variety on that order. Uh, it's that when you're inserting yourself into this system that per perpetuates sobriety, it helps to have other people who are walking the same path with you. And that variety attenuation is quite important. So that makes it an open question in terms of, is the problem set of living with capitalism sufficiently specific for this model to work? Um, for you know, revolution. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 that seems really crucial, right? And like, um, I'm I'm trying to I'm racking my brain here and trying to like think. Um, uh, does this does this sort of thing come up in in Beer's work? Because like, he, he does talk a lot about uh, like high variety channels, low variety channels, and stuff. But like, there's um, it it, it this does come up to the degree that um when you're doing a VSM diagnosis, you have to think quite hard about what the system ones of your organization are and what the roles are that they're fulfilling. And that 
uh, is a kind of variety attenuation that I think is similar to the way that uh, uh, 12 step groups tend to fork off of each other in terms of saying, oh, yeah, this is a function. This is a function. This is a function. And this is a a kind of identity, even if it is an extrinsic one in the way that they describe in this article. Yeah. The, the, the particular thing I'm, I'm trying to wrap my brain for is like um, this thing where um, like a kind of viable organization actually uses, in some cases, extremely low variety, like kind of um, one bit variety guillotines to carve off uh, huge tracts of space that it's just not going to touch. Um, and that's that's helpful for it. Or maybe maybe um, it's related, but like the thing where um, a recovering alcoholic will just refuse to go anywhere near anything that could even have a risk of exposing them to the stuff. And so that's like a kind of very, very tight filter that is adaptive. Like, is, is, like I guess it's, it's maybe something that's slightly counterintuitive in Beer's framework, perhaps, that like extreme low variety channels can actually be adaptive in, the, in these cases. Yes, I think we get a little bit of that discussion in the talk about um, meta languages in Brain of the Firm, right? The descriptive power of each level of, 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 of operation uh, being more elaborate uh, as you go up and less elaborate as you go down. Um, uh, but I think that the reason why, oh, sorry. The, the other thing I think that would, that would, um, be relevant to is the, um, the definition of metrics in system two, where you want to like, you know, beer is very, uh, insistent on that point about you don't want all the data about all the things you want the relevant data to your purpose and you want it to be clear. So don't overwhelm yourself with an infinity of statistical models. Just make the model that works for what you are doing. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I, I think that on the other hand, though, um, Beer's model is meant to be one that can apply to organizations that can handle a maximum amount of variety. And so it isn't um, it isn't exclusively focused on this kind of solution, right? It's actually meant to have these specific purpose solutions within a general purpose solution. Mm -hmm. Sure. Gotcha. Yeah. I guess the, the interesting thing here is that the AA and similar organizations, they balance their variety equation by saying no, and that they, they just like trim everything down. And that's, that's, that's definitely something to keep in mind and something to kind of ruminate on that like, there's, there's a definite power in just being able to say no to a problem and saying, nope, not in scope. We're not dealing with that. We're, de we're, de we're dealing with this one thing here. It's, it's, it's also, it's also a no and response, right? It's no, this isn't the organization for you, and here is the organization that is uh, will serve your needs, right? All right, I guess it's a no but, right? No but is the is the operation there. Um, so it's not simply a we don't want anything to do with you. It's like no, we do care about you. We care about your struggle, but this is a more appropriate location for you to engage with it. And like um, maybe for for like 
our kind of organizing and uh, like maybe the the sort of maybe um, slightly overcooked example would be like if your workplace union or your unionizing efforts is like starting to entertain like oh should we also do tenant unionizing it's like no probably not that that should just be a separate organization that handles that and we we coordinate with that other organization when necessary but um you yeah you, you can't stuff everything into one basket i guess um yeah and i i feel like there has to be more talk about this in beer to a point because it does really get back to that sort of like Maturana and Varela stuff, Maturana and Varela stuff that we were talking about, right? About like, you know, reproduction, speciation, all this kind of stuff that you see in nature. Um, but I, I, I think it is true that there isn't a whole lot of discussion in beer about organization, like forking or splitting mm, or anything like that. Yeah, it's it's actually not something that I've seen covered very much by him. Yeah, yeah, it seems to not not be there quite so much. Um, towards the end of this section, then the author kind of gets to this. Um, I guess it's probably why it's the the, the piece is called Vital Cells. But gets to a a vital principle of organization. As uh, so quoting here, uh, a vital principle of organization in which getting organized means following trajectories that allow us to overcome obstacles standing in the way of realizing our potential. So again, that's Spinoza sort of stuff. Um, and like notably, this is like through through organization. It's not through sheer acts of, self, of self-will. Um, so that's, that's the vital principle that they'll be referring to all the way through. Um, um, so the cybernetic episteme, what's all this about? Yeah, uh, so this is a kind of justification for why autonomous need to care about um, cybernetics. Uh, I suppose autonomous or anarchists leftists more broadly. Um, and the argument essentially is that um, cybernetics has over the sort of course of the later 20th century into the 21st century become a dominant episteme. That is to say, it's a dominant way of thinking about the relationship of uh, the I guess you would say individual or your 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 unit of analysis to its environment, right? Um, it you know we think constantly and make use of constantly uh, machines and concepts that are. Uh, the product of cybernetic thinking. So like, you know, we think about feedback all the time, uh, just like in, in, in uh, common sense conversation, right? Like, oh, oh, you know, hey, thanks for the feedback. Uh, can you give me some feedback? You know, all this kind of thing. Like it's very basic stuff, but also, of course, we're always working with uh, self-regulating machines like, um, you know, I don't know, our, our oven, we set it to a certain temperature to preheat and then it heats and then it lets us know that it's heated, right? Like it's everywhere. And because it's everywhere, to reject cybernetics as a um, an evil thing, right? A thing that we shouldn't be involved with. Like there's some, some autonomous, some anarchists who look at cybernetics primarily in the in terms of like being systems of top-down control 
as as a kind of like you know kind of Heidegger critique of like this is an enframing of reality, this is uh, oppressive, and so we need to like you know kind of create a space apart from cybernetics where we can manifest this this um, Spinozist vitalist uh, idea of an alternative that isn't conditioned by this inhuman way of thinking. Um, to try to do that sort of thing is kind of just bound to fail because cybernetics is pervasive. And so we have to do imminent critique. We have to do a transcendence of cybernetics from within cybernetics, right? Um, and that means that we have to accept these concepts, we have to accept systems theory, we have to accept cybernetics and design solutions that are towards our goals of growth and flourishing as opposed to say, I don't know, like uh, the Facebook algorithm uh, pushing us towards like anti-vaxxer content. Um, Right. As a, just a throwaway example of how cybernetics can be very perverse and manipulative. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and like I, I it is it all just kind of like feels like kind of what we've been saying for the last couple of years, you know, that like this is this is all kind of very resonant with with our project here. And like um, uh, I think this is a, a sort of angle that's maybe I don't know, it's, it's maybe not necessarily missing from the piece, but that one that jumps to mind that like. I think there's also just a kind of, it's just a kind of fact of nature of like evolutionary ratchets uh, that like once, you know, once organisms developed vertebra, like spines, it was fucking game over for like non-vertebrates, you know what I mean? Like, um, well, or like once, you know, well, not, not exactly that, but like, you know, there was, you know, there's a one way door there that goes, goes to like, you, if you're going to compete on that level, you're going to, you're going to have to catch up on that level. Maybe vertebra is the wrong, the wrong example, but like. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't I don't think that's necessarily a good example because you can get things like, you know, vertebrates becoming organisms that depend on exoskeletons or vertebrates becoming invertebrates when they go back to the ocean or like all kinds of like weird stuff can happen in biology based on context changing. Um, but the fact of the matter is like there is a kind of fitness about that solution to the problems of, you know, being an organism in like a complex organism in a environment that has to deal with gravity and, you know, complex terrain, that kind of stuff. Right. Like, it, it, you know, the whales and uh, dolphins are not like, bad solutions to living in the sea. Um, they're actually ones that have been able to thrive. Um, but that isn't to say that like, you know, the amoeba is rendered obsolete by the multicellular organism. In fact, it, it, it actually, you know, uh, single cell organisms colonize multicellular organisms and the context changes and, and it develops. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're doing better than us. Uh, yeah. I think maybe what I was more thinking of is like the kind of red queen pressure that happens in evolution where, um, 
just the very fact that everything else is moving also means that you have to keep moving and that like there's there's no real choice but to catch up with um it's like for, for listeners who are not familiar there's like um in evolutionary biology there's this like kind of analogy or like intuition pump they use like um they're referring to the red queen in alice in wonderland and i think the red queen says something like in order to stay in the same place you have to run as fast as you can and if you want to get anywhere you have to run twice as fast as that and so in evolution it's this like notion that the, the very for organisms and for species the very fact that evolution is ongoing for other organisms and species is a kind of implicit ambient arms race that like even, even if they're not trying to evolve to get advantage they have to at least evolve to catch up um and the, the development of stuff like Maybe in human history we see things like this with um, the invention of firearms. Like, bow and arrow just doesn't cut it once firearms are on the table. Um, in, yeah, in almost every circumstance, it's obsolete, right? Like, it's it's only extreme edge cases, like doing special ops where you have to be very quiet, that you might want to use a crossbow instead of using a gun. Um, so that's the much better example than vertebra. Uh, that, that, that's, the, that's the much better example is like that kind of thing. And like conventional armor is made obsolete by nukes and shit like that. You know, it's um, you have to catch up. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And I think there's there's just all these kind of things that like once once cybernetics was discovered as like a kind of description of things that just happen in the world, whether we know about them or not. And that the people who know about these things and have a science of it gain an advantage by doing that. The whole the whole game just changes, and it's it's a one way function. It's a trapdoor function. You can only go through it one way. You can't go back. That's that's uh, that's a very good description. Because yeah, like if you are dealing with any kind of complex task, having an adaptive machine is an advantage over having a non-adaptive machine, right? There are still non-adaptive machines like, you know, um, uh, a hunting rifle is still an unadaptive machine, right? It's purely mechanical. It doesn't have any real feedback mechanisms. Um, it, it, it does the thing that it was designed to do. It does it very well, and it doesn't waste... Uh, anything by having too much uh, variety, uh, like uh, capacity to uh, deal with variety, right? Because you, you leave that to the hunter, you don't leave that to the gun, right? But if you're talking about um, a more complex problem, then I want to move a projectile to a point very fast, um, then you always are going to have an advantage if your machine is adaptive. It's like these days you can technically design a uh, design a car that doesn't have all the complex uh, computer systems in it um, that manage the brakes, manage the gas, like, you know, adjust the steering angle here and there dynamically, all using computer uh, technology. Uh, but it's never going to be as fast as one that does because that thing is adapting to things that the driver can't even perceive, right? Like, it's just, you know, you can do that for fun. You could do that to develop driver skill. But if your goal is to have the fastest car to go around a racetrack, you are going to have to have 
those technologies in there because it's simply better at adapting and the environment that creates is one where you know it's like uh, i don't know yeah it's like back in the day when they had rally racing it used to all be rear-wheel drive cars once the all-wheel drive car came out the rear-wheel drive car couldn't win a rally in a million years it, it simply was no longer in contention. If you wanted to have one, you would have to create a separate category. You go, you go through the trap door, and there's there's no way back through that. Um, yeah, the F one racing is a really good example of that. Um, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, F one is one where there are certain things that are just prescribed out of existence because they don't want to make things too automatic. But other than that every single time there's a new iteration of a car, every time there's a new year, you have to f- do that thing of running twice as fast to stay in place because um, it's incredibly competitive at like the microsecond kind of margin. Um, and uh, cybernetics uh, does create that kind of environment um, when you're looking at specific sorts of problem domains. And um, if you are non-adaptive in an adaptive in a in a system that is intelligent to the need for adaption, uh, you are not going to survive. Um, yeah, and like the, the the bosses have this stuff, like they have adaptive machines, and um, it, uh, it we yeah that's that's like firearms against bow and arrows it's just it's you know there's there's no way that sticking to our guns on this is going to make any sense we have to um it, it's like so the, the 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 author is at pains to kind of draw the distinctions between like the kinds of like from above cybernetics um that's useful to empire and to like useful to capital versus the like cybernetics in general and like bottom-up cybernetics which is um which is kind of different and like you know, we can, it's like, we can, we can make, we can and should make use of these techniques. Um, firstly, because like, you know, I don't know, th- things aren't necessarily stained by their use, you know, in, in one context or another. Um, and also like, we also don't really have a choice because we, we can't afford to not catch up. Yeah. I mean, it, it's like, um, it's like, you know, if you were to say follow a, a a strategy of separation and be like the Amish, well, the Amish have have niches that they occupy. But if they were trying to say be competitive in the food market, they would have no hope because their 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 whole thing is that they're deliberately not adapting their farming techniques to the environment. Um, and, you know, they exist in a niche, but they would not become a general sort of approach to farming. Yeah. Um, I mean, that does, doesn't it seem like a lot of the left is basically structurally like the Amish, I guess, you know, in, in some way or another, that, like, just kind of strange holdovers that only survive by limiting contact with with the rest of the world you know yeah i think so like i think yeah i think it's like there's there's sort of micro niches where things like a um uh like a leninist party constitution like a a party constitution based off of zinoviev is adaptive but 
they're micro niches. They're not actually solutions to the problems that people want to address. Uh, and, and the same thing with like LARPing, uh, the one big union stuff when like trying to do, trying to do anarcho-syndicalism in a society where anarcho-syndicalism has no practical basis. Right. Um, which is one of the sort of problems that autonomism is grappling with. One of the problems that uh, it's trying to address is like, yeah, like, okay, anarcho-syndicalism is a nice, like, organizational form in theory, and it may have been adapted to a particular stage of capitalism, but we don't live in that stage anymore. So if you are doing it, it's kind of more of an affinity group than uh, a meaningful revolutionary organization. Yeah, exactly. And um, the other thing that kind of reminds me of that is like the sort of just like withdrawal as the only remaining strategy. It's just like, yeah, okay, we we can't engage with any of this stuff. So let's just withdraw into. Right. Yeah. 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 You can become a you can become an armchair leftist, too, where you just withdraw from the problem entirely as much as you can. Um, And uh, and you have an analysis, but you have no meaningful action in relation to your situation. Yeah. Um, the author, I think, puts it quite quite nicely and succinctly in saying that uh, cybernetics thus poses the terrain upon which the struggles of the 21st century are to be waged for better or for worse. Um, yeah, it's a nice way of capturing it. Um, he also invokes um, one of the little bits of Dillas that I quite like, that like we don't actually have a choice between you know, the more brutish regime or the more more virtuous regime. Like, we are trapped in this fucking thing. And it's a conflict between enslaving and liberating forces within the regime. Like, what, which threads can we pull on? What kinds of things can we do within this context that could move us somewhere else? Um, I think the way Deleuze puts it is that, like, you just... You look around on the ground for whatever weapons are available and you pick the fucking things up, you know? Yes, but you pick them up in a deliberate, cl- critical way, as opposed to just saying, you know, uh, everyone's jumping off a bridge, so I will too. You know, like th- th- that's that's uh, uh, the difference. And I think like this stuff about um, power and control is interesting. Power, control, and discipline, right? These are the things that they talk about. Um, so obviously control is an inherent notion in cybernetics, right? Like that's what it's all about. Um, and discipline is something that is implied by structure, right? Um, and then power is something that I think um, there's some degree of interest in, in, uh, in cybernetics, um, but it isn't integral to the analysis really, right? Like it's, it's kind of like, this is the problem you get with like actor network theory, um, where, uh, I remember, uh, Feenberg, a professor of mine, uh, who we covered on the show, uh, he was in a lecture or he was in a seminar with, um, Latour. He was in one of Latour's seminars and he sort of brought up this issue of power right of of ideology and power and he's like oh we don't we don't talk about that here like that 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 (laughs) like these relationships are all symmetrical what the fuck (laughs) and 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 there's there's no we don't talk about asymmetry we don't talk about power um 
and 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 that can be a huge blind spot of cybernetics because you can do a cybernetic analysis in that mode even though i wouldn't say it's very good cybernetics <laughs> uh, or or uh, uh um i think another one that you might look at is the way that cybernetics has been operationalized in like conventional action research where it's it's action research in the interests of management so it, it tries to portray itself in a very like apolitical sense but it's actually about management control over workers whereas then you have like critical action research which is actually you know this kind of cybernetics from below approach right where you you, you acknowledge that power exists and think about it as opposed to um bracketing it out of your analysis absolutely yeah and i think that's um I don't know, it's it's like that thing of just like take taking these things seriously. Like t- take if if you are seriously concerned with power and its distribution, like you then have to take all this other stuff seriously. Um, yeah, and I I I think this is important too because like I was thinking back to our discussion on it could happen here, um, and I was thinking about that point I made about um, what was it that that. Uh, the current systems we live in tend to be quite infantilizing and they create a kind of, yeah, a sort of a psychologically disempowered subject, right? One that's the, one that's inherently submissive because it's, it's childlike and irresponsible because it, it's never been taught to be responsible. Yeah. And then I was thinking about like, well, uh, maybe a little bit too much of a, a simple analysis of the problem because we kind of then get into this sort of leftist thing about um, valorizing power and its its usage over um, other ways of being, right? So, like, I'm thinking, for example... Uh, I think like, you know, to get sort of to the Foucault stuff that's behind some of this, like there's kind of the discussion in like feminism about like, well, you know, if you are feminist, but you have a hostility to being femme because it's seen as an inherently oppressed mode of being um that is kind of an incomplete analysis of femininity right of 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 the the problem space of feminism um and similarly like we shouldn't demand of everybody that they take on this like i don't want to say mature but managerial uh, empowered uh, sort of alpha role um, and and, it, and if they don't they're not good leftists right um, and it, it's 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 you know it's another thing that's come up in like in uh, like BDSM right is like because you have dominance and submissives in BDSM doesn't mean that the dominant has a license to be abusive outside of the consensual boundaries of the relationship 
nor does it mean that the submissive is not valued equally within that relationship, right? And if you're, if you're doing either of those things, if you're breaking either of those conditions, then that's just an abusive relationship. So I, I wouldn't want to encourage us to think about power in such a way where it's like, oh yeah, power is about everybody being a dom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> power is about everybody being dominant and having a, yeah. a, a, a constitution of desire where they desire dominance. Um, it, 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 you know, we should have, like, I don't think it's pathological to be ambivalent about the exercise of power in that way, or to wish to be under power, the, under the power of another in a way that is consensual and healthy and not abusive, right? Because, you know, there's a kind of power to that as well, right? Like if, if you are a submissive, there's a power to that. It's just not expressed in the same way. So it's, it's really important that we don't um, sort of, you know, sort of say like, oh yeah, everybody needs to be mask. Everybody needs to be dominant. Everybody needs to be, you know, mature. Even if you're a child, um, uh, we should like have some more nuanced thinking about these things when we're talking about like control systems and, uh, the organizations of, uh, our movement. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's all super interesting. It, it, it reminds me of um, uh, a couple of workplaces ago. Um, we did this thing of like trying to you know get the engineers more autonomy and more kind of decision making and stuff. And I actually worked with an engineer who was just like, "Yeah, I don't give a shit. <laughs> just just tell me what to do, and I'll I'll do the work, and then I'll drop my pickaxe on the floor at five and go home." <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's just like pretty strongly didn't want to like have any of that responsibility. It's just like not something he was really interested in doing, um, which was refreshing, you know. Yeah. And, and, and the, the thing there is like, is not to say, oh, but you must, oh, but you must, you must assume this position, uh, this subjectivity, this, this psychology, this, you must be this kind of, of desiring machine that, you know, <laughs> we have mandated is the only acceptable one. Um, it, it, it's more to say, well, but is that what you really want? Do you really want to be completely subaltern do you really want to be completely disempowered and the answer is probably no the answer is probably oh well i want to be governed by another power but i want to be governed in a way that is consensual and healthy for me <laughs> and not one that is actually completely arbitrary and which i have no say over yeah I suspect in this um, this colleague's uh, case, it was just that the decision-making process, like the management process, was just skull-crushing tedium. And he was just like, I'm not fucking doing any of that stuff. It's just, it's a horrible, being being stuck in meetings forever is horrible. So I'm just going to gonna nope out of it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's worth interrogating why somebody responds in a particular way to, to, uh, to this. Yeah. Yeah, and ex exactly. And it's like, you know, it's a stereotype, but like, it's characteristic of people who are submissive that they just don't enjoy power like that. Like, it's like, I don't want to make decisions. I don't want to be involved in making decisions and I don't want to enforce decisions. <laughs> yeah. Decisions suck. Cause none of these things bring me pleasure. They're all miserable. <laughs> I guess that's, that's all, that's all super important. And it's, it's a, it's an important corrective for, 
I guess like I mean the, the, the fact that we talk about decision and like decision making processes so much and like it's, it's such a central part of like this whole research program it's like you'd be at risk of valorizing it too much and being forgetting that like no work sucks and like deciding things about work sucks too and um yeah well it, it sucks if you don't if it's not your thing right if, 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 if it isn't in the constitution of your desires to do those things then it sucks but you know some people actually really like that uh, it, it, it like you know, given certain constraints and like and, and environments, contexts, all of these qualifications, like actually enjoy being the leader, being in power, making decisions, all of these things, and that's okay, right? Uh, it, 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 it's just that recognizing that people have different like constitutions of desire. And that this is a thing you have to take it into account when you're designing a system that is meant to be both equitable but also enjoyable for the people who are within it. Because, um, yeah, you know, it's no good to live in utopia if utopia is something you hate. Like these uh, these characters that you get in in the uh, in the culture books who are like, you know. I mean, Banks always makes fun of them and for good reason, but these extreme examples of people who are like, I can't fit into this culture because it just doesn't do anything for me. Yeah, you know? yeah. You know, if that means you are actually like in, what is it, accession, somebody who is is only interested in being in a abusive society where you're on top, that's not acceptable, okay, or should it be valorized, right? Um, but, it, you know, in most cases, there are accommodations and, and ways to adapt to that as opposed to just saying, you know, oh, no, everybody needs to be somebody in special circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yeah, God, can you imagine in our um, our wonderful uh, cyber Marxist utopia just being marched into your um, the fucking like workers council meeting at gunpoint to be like, you you must participate in worker democracy, <laughs> you know? Um, well, but this is this is something that was kind of in a way characteristic of like Marxist Marxist Leninist states where um, it's like in uh, it's like in North Korea when they have those massive displays that they do, right? And you have to perform enthusiasm for the for the government, for the society, for the regime, for being a collective, like or the idea that you must vote in the election and even though the election is rigged, like it's it's there there is a kind of um, like the the focus of, of of Leninist thought on heroic voluntarism does imply a kind of mandatory heroism that becomes empty because it isn't something that is uh, in accordance with people's desires or psychologies. <laughs> Yeah, totally. I would also say that that kind of mandatory heroism stuff is absolutely fucking pervasive through, uh, I guess, like autonomism, anarchism, all this kind of stuff. Like, it's that's something that's super re relatable from my time in a more kind of anarchist milieu. Um, that like, oh, I don't know. Like, yeah, it's um, it's 
it's it's also very funny because it's it's something that is really not characteristic of militaries. Like, <laughs> if you're in the trenches and you're doing trench life, like you know, from what I've read of like first firsthand accounts of soldiers in in World War One, there were people that were recognized as being heroic, and people had a certain kind of appreciation for that. But it absolutely was not expected of 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 people to be that way because it was recognized that that was definitely something that only applied to outliers. And they had a particular kind of psychology that the that 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 an average person who is expected to live in a trench uh, with with uh, bombs going off over their head all the time. Uh, just would not have and couldn't possibly be expected to have like the camaraderie that was characteristic of those situations was a far cry from the idea that, Oh no, we all need to be super activists. Mm. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, I'm just now thinking of uh, Blackadder and they're, they're trying to get away from the trenches at every moment. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Or even if you just had a, even if you just had a blase attitude about the situation, that was completely normal and accepted for whatever it was normal in that horrific situation. But it was it was still a situation of incredibly high stress and um, nevertheless one in which people were not expected to be something completely different from what they actually were. Mm. Well, like it, it, for for Blackadder, it was like um, the, the, for Blackadder, it was extremely high stress. But then for um, Hugh Laurie's character, it was like he was a bit too silly to really appreciate the danger of the um, <laughs> the situation. And then you have Melchit. Melchit is just like 30, 30 miles from the front anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, um, fun show. Anyway, um, to close out this section, there's just one little bit I want to read at the end here that I think puts it quite nicely. Um, Uh, There is no outside to governmentality, just as the project of governing is always incomplete. Either we cede the space of cybernetic systems to our enemies, to those who keep us down, or we create mechanisms by which regulatory processes are imminent to our own vitality. Uh, Yeah, pretty good. Um, Nice way to sum it up. Yes, um, exactly, exactly. And like part of the vitalism of... Deleuzianism or Spinozism is that, you know, your your desires and your vitality go hand in hand, right? That if you're authentically uh, existing according to your um, nature, your your imminent nature, then um, your desires and your vitality are both going to be uh, Mm -hmm. flourishing together. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um... They're all about that flourishing. Um, the next section then is two forms of faith, um, which I guess just gets into the the critique of the milieu, um, and and also like it, it also draws a comparison with like wellness culture in in the general bourgeois culture, um, and these these both suck. Um, is kind of the conclusion. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I mean, the, the milieu kind of like it, it, he's he's just tearing into into his own crowd here, and it's and, and again, it's it's all familiar because I've I kind of came out of some of this stuff, and like it, yeah, it, it gives great voice to these kind of problems that like um, the kind of uh, structuring our kind of efforts around this like radical scene, which is just like uh, body system, you know, like small groups of friends, 
standing apart from society it doesn't doesn't work out right like um the just totally skipping out on debates over organization or like things like that just like taking a, a total non-position on strategy and organization that's not that's not viable you end up with a very hollow kind of autonomy like it's it's very isolating and i think the very crucial point here is that all that sort of stuff and again this this author is reflecting on their own experiences here and like really calling calling out that like there's we have to come to a conclusion that this stuff hasn't and doesn't foster our capacities um for us or and our comrades it just it just doesn't we run into these barriers over and over again uh comrades burn out and they walk away that's how this works out yes and they, they uh they also talk here about the tyranny of structurelessness which we've covered on our um anarchist cybernetics uh episode already i guess but um uh, one thing i did want to say is that you know it's one thing to enjoy exercising power in very like you know external obvious ways um but in a structuralist situation it's also tends to be the case that the people who do actually accumulate power are sociopaths um and so you want structures that yes they can allow you to operate in a non-dominant mode but also ensure that the people who are dominant are not sociopaths <laughs> because that is the position that they most enjoy being in and uh as a matter of course cause harm to everybody else and i've seen that many times across organizations that uh yeah you need defense defense capabilities against uh people who exercise like narcissists sociopaths people who exercise power um in an abusive manner uh and 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 a structuralist organization does not uh actually prevent that from happening no totally right because like the the structure you, you could have structure that would inoculate you against that kind of stuff in fact like to be inoculated against lunatics would require structure that's the that's the hinge point there yeah it, and it, it's kind of like uh when beer talks about how the higher levels of um the vsm are services for the uh system ones like they they you know the the core is the autonomy of the system ones and then you have these services on top of it that allow it to adapt to situations and become uh and and flourish um it, it's not that you have managers on top who are bossing everyone else around yeah um the uh the points then about the wellness culture um are kind of interesting and i guess they they also mirror like the problems of the milieu right that like the, the in 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 the general culture this wellness stuff is very individual um like the individual is supposed to just kind of like fix themselves and isolate themselves from the bad stuff in the world um which it's it's more obvious how that would go wrong with the wellness stuff but then you you then recognize it as having a lot in common with the the way the kind of milieu works right like no we're we're going to isolate ourselves from the bad stuff in the world we're just going to kind of will our way out of it we're going to 
I don't know, just be more virtuous on our own and our, our, our little group of buddies. Um, yeah, it, you um, have like these um, spaces of safety and domesticity within which wellness is meant to be cultivated. So like yoga studios or retreats or um, the domestic space, uh, you know, like, oh, I'm doing this interior decorating because it's creating a... Um, a, a safe haven for me within which I can be well. Um, uh, and then there is the, the sort of second order of this, which is the uh, performance of ideal selves and ideal uh, standards of wellness by influencers on social media. Uh, yeah. <laughs> good vibes only. Um, and you get a kind of community, like the quote unquote wellness community, uh, which is people imitating these standards of wellness. Um, so people who go to yoga class together, but don't have any meaningful connection to one another, people who are, have parasocial relationships with that girl uh, influencers on, you know, Instagram or whatever. Um, it, it, it is, uh, and then, and then of course the, the influencers themselves become alienated from themselves because they have to 24 seven perform this standard of discipline that is about being the ideal self for the camera, for the audience, as opposed to, uh, being a community member in a meaningful sense. Um, yeah. So it, it, it's, it's pretty gross stuff. Um, I also had a lot of discussions, uh, with, um, I, I had a discussion the other day with, with Bob Neubauer about how, like, there's a lot of like anti-vax stuff in these wellness communities. And I think that, and we were talking about like sort of the individualism that is inherent to the communities uh, where it's like, yes, we have a particular kind of, uh, I guess you would say in like the terms that they use here, extrinsic relationship to one another. Um, but it's really about all of us working on ourselves so like we are apart together, right? And we're all working on our own individual standard of wellness, our own particular body. Um, and somehow this kind of coincides with a like libertarian hostility to any idea of social re responsibility, any idea of social, of social wellness, um, and uh, any idea of, uh, uh, collective belonging and care. Um, uh, so it's, it's not everybody in the wellness world that, that would fall into that, um, uh, description certainly, but many do. And I think they're, they're operating in that kind of mode that they're describing here in this uh, article. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. And, um, I don't, it, it's I, the, 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 the parallels with, between the wellness stuff and the, the milieu stuff are like, uh, very interesting. And like, I don't know, like, how many people are going to get so kind of upset at this this sort of, like, comparison, I guess, that, like... Because it, it's, it's very, like, that kind of... 
like new left sort of thing of, hey, look, if we all just have a personal revolution and we all do it, then we're going to have a revolution, you know? If everyone changed all at once, then everything would change, you know? Yeah. And that's, you know, so on the one hand, you have Instagram influencers and they're like, you know, perfectly done up sort of houses with the like, no bad vibes shit tacked on the walls. And then on on the, the parallel is, you know, people who fetishize living in squats um, and, uh, you know, going, you can, you can kind of draw, draw parallels across the, the boundary there, which is very funny and weird. Um, but they, they both have this underlying pathology of, of, of modernity, right? Late, late modernity, this, this subjectivity. Yeah. It, it, it's like if you took like the heroic example of Mandela in prison and his resilience to the oppression that he was put under and we're like, no, everybody needs to exhibit that same degree of inner strength and discipline related simply to their career and existence in capitalism. And if you don't, then clearly you're just defective, right? Like, like on the one hand, it's about a collective struggle. It's about, you know, this uh, his heroic resilience. On the other hand, it's about an extreme level of discipline in regards to something that is incredibly mundane um, and, 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 and unwarranted, right? Like to put yourself through 24 seven discipline just so that you can be a better careerist, just so that you can maybe, maybe, maybe if you're super lucky, become petty bourgeois or bourgeois. And that's, that's the, the, the standard of your dream, of your faith, of the horizon of your existence. Um, it's, it's like, why should we be heroic about the most bland shit imaginable? You know? Yeah, yeah. Like, um, if you, if you adopt the Sigma grind set, you, you can be the guy who runs the used chainsaw dealership with the, uh, roof tiles falling off. Um, yeah, you can get there. Um, it's not much to aspire to, I guess. Um... to General Intellect Unit. While you wait for the next episode, you can follow us on Twitter at GIUnitPod. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on the internet at GeneralIntellectUnit.net. And you can find us on all the podcast apps. So like, rate, and subscribe. If you go to patreon.com slash GeneralIntellectUnit, you can throw us a couple of bucks a month to help the show and to get access to our community Discord. This show is part of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast network and research collective. Go to emancipation.network and check out our sister shows such as Swampside Chats, From Alpha to Omega, Mortal Science, and Jumpsuit Utopia. They are all excellent shows and excellent folks. In other news, Kyle and I recently appeared on an episode of It Could Happen Here. We recommend you go check out that show and that episode. I also appeared on a recent episode of Auxiliary Statements. Likewise, we recommend you go check out that show. As always, thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and we hope you'll join us again next time.